What's going on, everybody? This is Black Men Sundays. I'm your host, Corey Sylvester Murray, and we're talking about generational wealth. We're talking about finance, and of course, we're talking about business. It's a Black Man Sunday. Time to put all childish things away. I refuse to be the man I was yesterday. Gotta put my best And before we introduce today's guest, my brother Eric from Hunts, Vegas, Alabama. How's it going out there? And who do you have for our Black Men Sunday Spotlight, my brother? Yeah, man, um, we are under a severe winter warning as we speak. The governor's issued, so we're supposed to, things supposed to kind of close down the next couple of days. So we're trying to bundle up and get everything ready. So, um, but with that being said, we'll be fine. So with that being said, I want to introduce you my spotlight for today. And this is this young little brother here. His name is Kevon Wooder. And think about Mr. Wooder, this young man here. He's 10 years old and he's from Bowie, Maryland. And the thing about Mr. Wooder, he's the first Black Deaf Emmy nominee. You know, he's recognized for The Last of Us, which he's up for an outstanding guest actor in a drama series. And The Last of Us, uh, Mr. Wooder plays Sam, which is a deaf child with leukemia, adding death to the story. So the show's daring choice to cast a deaf actor made Wooder's performance a standout. Now, Wooder's acknowledgement um, of the nomination impact on the deaf actors. His mother, April Jackson, was elated, never expecting this to be on the debut of a TV show. Now, Wooder's historical feat, he's the youngest outstanding guest actor nominated and second youngest Emmy nominee overall that's my spotlight for today mr kayvon wooder now corey back to you man that's an amazing spotlight man Bowie, maryland wow yeah, yeah my brother yeah, my brother kalali used to was Bowie. he's pronounced Bowie. you know he's from Bowie. The, yeah you know he's oh. from alabama you know you know your alabama <laughs> a&m boys you know fam you Florida A&M always have to get y'all right. It's called Bowie. Oh, my bad, my bad. My, yeah. I apologize for the mispronunciation. No, nah, no, nah, it's all so, good. It's all good. You went to you Alabama State. North, so, you, so you're up north, so you you wouldn't know. Just like we used to say, have people call uh, Cassimene, it's supposed to be Kissimmee, Florida, you know, and they said Cassimene. So mm. I, I got you. <laughs> well, see, well, see, I learned my lesson when I worked Kissimmee, in Tallahassee. Kissimmee, man, Kissimmee. I know it's Kissimmee. I know yeah. it's Kissimmee, but if you don't, if you're not from the area, the way it's the way it's spelled, you know, you just kind of kind of take a second wind guessing what it, you know, was supposed how it's pronounced. So yeah, definitely, man. It's interesting you said it because like when I first moved to Tallahassee, I went over to the Georgia side, and I uh, said, oh, I said, oh, I'm in Cairo. They said, no, it's Cairo. So I said, oh, okay, I got to get my pronunciations right. Yeah. So, yeah, man. Well, hey, man, y'all be y'all be safe and um, y'all be, make sure that heat is on in Huntsville, aka Hunts Vegas, man. And thank you for that spotlight, my brother. Absolutely, definitely. And now let's go on to introduce today's guest. This brother here has over thirty-five years financial industry experience. He's the first African American to serve on Wells Fargo Advisors Operating Committee. This brother is the current managing director in the National Sales of Wealth and Investment Management. So you know. We're going we gonna to get right to it. He told me not to make a long intro. So without further ado, David A. Hawkins, welcome to Black Man Sundays, brother. How you doing? Man, I'm great. I'm in Florida. You know, it's 62 degrees outside and compared to elsewhere, I'm loving it. 
Definitely. Oh, I, oh, couldn't be better. I mean, you know, we're doing a little better than my brother in Huntsville who has a snowstorm yeah. heading his way. So without further ado, I just want to dive right in. What's your biggest lesson learned coming into the financial industry? First of all, I just want to congratulate you, uh, Corey, and the other brothers on the call for Black Men Sunday. I think it's important and I support you having these kinds of conversations and having a forum for us to take this conversation to the next level, because it is critical uh, to talk about investing in wealth building in our community in particular. Uh, you know, today we're going to talk about the state of Black wealth, which I refer to as the Black wealth opportunity, just so you know. And I think uh, you should know that very often when I'm in the audience talking about these kinds of topics, while I recognize the importance of discussing the facts that face Black wealth, I'm also aware that for some, it might feel alarming when we talk about disparities. Uh, and my own approach to the topic has changed over the years And I would, when I would give the same presentation because when I'd finish my presentation, I'd be approached by attendees who, yes, they were alarmed sometimes by data, but oftentimes they would find what I had to say not very hopeful. So I've committed myself over the year to find a way to share hope and empowerment while speaking to the disparity of wealth in our community. And so it's interesting that on the eve of the day we celebrate the life and legacy of the great Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., you should know this as a background. A few years ago, while I was at a commemoration for his life, as we were singing Lift Every Voice and Sing, it occurred to me, Corey, that I needed to tell the full story of Black wealth while telling about the disparity. Um, everybody knows that in Lift Every Voice and Sing, we sing, sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. And so I wanna emphasize some of where the present has brought us in our conversations today, because as we face the future, uh, and march towards our own victory, we need to be fully equipped about some of the other things that are going today. And that's exactly what my goal is today, is to talk about that. And hopefully, uh, by the end of this conversation that we're going to have, help some people to maybe do some things different differently. I understand that there still are many of us who are in the struggle, and it's as real as it ever was. But Maybe some others who can may walk away feeling motivated to do some things differently. You have over 35 years of financial industry experience. So that means it's a lot of presidencies. It's a lot of wars. It's a lot of life that has happened. So what's mm -hmm. your biggest lesson learned coming to the financial industry and where you are now? So you should know, I, I grew up in the South Bronx and the projects in the South Bronx, New York, and growing up in the 70s in New York, to me, $100 was a lot of money. And so this $100, a lot of money guy goes to Wall Street as a career. I won't tell you about how I got there because that's a long story. But the bottom line was I got there and I'm living in the projects, giving advice to wealthy people around the country about how to build and manage wealth. And one of the earliest lessons I learned being in the industry as it relates to wealth business is that the majority of clients 
I had the opportunity to work with were not trust fund babies. They were not business owners or corporate executives or professionals, nor were they athletes or entertainers. They certainly weren't lottery winners. These clients were everyday mom and pop who were just very disciplined about building wealth, budgeting and savings and who over time also leveraged professional advice. And many times when I share this data, I'm asked how many were athletes and entertainers. And the truth is, I promise people that there aren't that many uh, people from our community who are athletes and entertainers. They're just folks who were very disciplined about saving and learning and building wealth over time. Wow, great information. You also co-chair the World's Fargo Advisors Black and African American Initiative. Mm -hmm. You're also the executive advisor to the Black and African American Connection Employee Resource Network. See, I couldn't say all that in the beginning because I wanted to get right to it. But, you know, we have to show you respect. This is Black Men Sundays. So my next question for you is, you know, I'm a mentor in our community, Orlando, Apopka area. What's the significance of investing early? Well, the biggest significance is the power of time right? Time cures a lot of ills in investing. Because over time, just to give you an idea, when I came to Wall Street, which was 1979, I think that that year Dow closed around 970. And everybody knows today it's at 38,000. So if you if you go back to 1979, if you had invested that $1,000, right? It's thirty-eight thousand dollars today. That is that is significant. That's a that's that's a thousand dollars now. Thirty-eight thousand dollars. If you had system systematically over that same period of time, disciplined in a disciplined way, saved on a monthly or at least an annual basis, what would be the power of 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 that dollar today? And that, to me, is the importance of early investing. And during that time, to your point earlier, we've had presidents attempted assassinations we've had wars we've had pandemics we've had uh, all manner of things that have occurred and every one of those events that occurred in america anyway people freaked out the world is going to hades in a handbasket but if you stuck with the disciplined approach of saving and accumulating wealth over that same period of time a thousand dollars became thirty eight thousand dollars or a million dollars is $38 million today. That's the importance of time. Great information. Wow. And as we talk about black wealth, a lot of brothers, you know, we stocks, investing, I'm hearing bonds are coming back, but how can we accelerate the growth of black wealth? So I want to go back and, and talk about some things, if that's okay with you, because this is information that I don't hear very often. In fact, uh, I had to dig really deep to find this data. So Black Wealth today is at $6.3 trillion. $6.3 trillion. That's part of the news. The news gets better. Over the last 20 years, Black Wealth has grown at 316%. That's versus 196% for others. 316%. And significant in that story is that today, 8% of all millionaires in the United States are Black. 8% of all millionaires in the United States today are Black, and they represent 
1.79, almost 1.8 million black millionaires in the United States. That's powerful information. So if, if you think about that, that is a story that I think we ought to be hyping, that everybody should be aware of. And not only millionaires, today they're in another 1.7 million black households with substantial earning power that could be transitioned into investable wealth. And I think that's something to celebrate before we talk about the question that you asked. Does that make sense? Well, that makes great sense because I kind of want to ask another question, but I'll, I'll let you answer that one first. But I'll kind of pile it on top so you can just go back into it because I, I already want to know like what's driving the state of Black wealth. Well, it's it's not terribly complicated. I think Black wealth is being driven by the same things that drive wealth everywhere else. First of all, in the Black community, education you know, you listen to the news, you never get the impression that our graduation rates from high school, our graduation rates from college, our graduation rates from postgraduate school is increasing, particularly, unfortunately, not that it's unfortunate that it's women, I just wish that it was across both men and women. But in the Black community, uh, education is prioritized and we're seeing the results of it. Of course, we're getting better jobs than we used to, thanks to education and thanks to the fact that, you know, even though they're, they're, they're we're trying to eradicate some of these laws that are here that allow for opportunities for diverse communities, we're getting better jobs. And in those jobs, we're seeing advancement uh, more than ever. While we have fewer CEOs than we used to, we're having more people up the corporate ladder than, than we used to. And, and with that comes increased earnings, which is driving wealth. Uh, obviously entrepreneurship is, is, is growing fast again, primarily or significantly more so among women, but entrepreneurship is growing. And I think one thing that we don't talk about, which is very important is that more family dinner table conversations about the importance of building wealth that's happening in our community. And so I think that's important to talk about because the more we're doing that, more we're engaging our children about the importance of it and how you do it and why you do it, I think is going to continue to drive Black wealth going forward. So when we're talking about Black wealth, I feel like a lot of times we don't talk about the hindrances of achieving Black wealth. So from your point of view, what in the Black community is hindering us from achieving wealth? Man, that is an incredible question and so multi-layered. Uh, obviously, the biggest contributor is history, right? I mean, uh, in 400 years of Africans being in this country, 250 of those years, we were the wealth. Think about that for a second, right? We were the wealth. And for the last 150 years, you know, since that time, we've dealt with all the disparities that you can imagine, everything from Jim Crow and Black codes and segregation. And, you know, I, I don't need to rehearse all of it to us. Right? We, we, we already know we had we didn't have equal access and we still don't have equal access to education. We still don't have equal access to housing. We still don't have equal access to healthcare. We still don't have equal access to capital. We still have disparate experiences in our justice systems. And those things contribute greatly. It can't even be measured, the impact that that has had on the ability to build and grow wealth. And even when we were able to do that, 
in our history, there is this long legacy of tearing down those communities. Not, we didn't do it, <laughs> right? Um, uh, Greenwood, I mean, I'm not gonna go listing all the communities, but folks came in and tore down, I'm, I'm not sure if it's gel, I'm, I don't know what the motivation is, hatred, but tore down our communities where we were succeeding and thriving. And so the answer to the question is very complicated and very hard to answer. On the other hand, however, uh, and I hope we get to talk about this in greater detail, there are some differences in the way our industry approaches uh, wealth in diverse communities. I think there's some differences in the way that in our community we manage wealth. There is a dramatic difference in our community about how we transfer wealth that I think has the single largest impact about the things that we can control, single largest impact on the growth of wealth in our community. And so um, it, it, it's a long and complicated answer to your question, but I, I hope that we're, we're delivering the sense that there are multiple forces and to the extent that we as a community can harness that and continue to grow wealth as we are growing wealth today, then I think we're going to be in a much, much better place going forward. Okay. And what can the financial institution be doing to, you know, help with the wealth process as far as information? There's data suggesting that 56% of Black investors or Black people of means are concerned and very fearful of losing money. Some of that is driven by the fact that there's generally a lack of trust in the stock market, yes. Some of that is driven by the fact that there's a lack of trust in financial institutions. Look, we have a checkered past in our industry about how we deal with uh, diverse communities and in particular, African-American community. Uh, some have had very bad investing experience. And, and candidly, some of that is due to where we're getting advice from. Uh, but we've had bad experiences in investing. And so that impacts the way that we connect with the financial services industry. So as an industry, to answer your question more directly, we need to address the disparity directly. We need to acknowledge the past and be intentional to speak directly to our community about how we move forward. And if, until we acknowledge these disparities and have an open dialogue in the community about what happened and how we move forward, I think that's gonna to continue to be a challenge. Secondarily, as an industry, I think that we need to understand the nuances of wealth and the significance of wealth in our communities. I mean, if I were to just give you a simple example, a simple, simple example would be, we prioritize families in a way that says, for instance, if something happens to my mom, the likelihood of us as a family, my brother and my sisters, to think about putting my mom in a home is pretty slim to none. That decision has a lot of burden beyond just financial upfront, but it impacts our finances in a great way. And as an industry, we don't talk about that when we're talking about diverse communities or talking to diverse communities. We're talking about, you know, the picture of wealth is you know, getting a second home and buying a yacht and flying on a private jet. Well, that's not that's not our definition. Our definition is how are we taking care of our community? How are we taking care of our families? And I think as an industry, unless we're speaking about that, sometimes I think we're we're uh, leaving folks behind. And then finally, 
if 8% of millionaires are black, and this is an interesting analysis, right? 8% of millionaires are black, only two to 5% of financial advisors are black, depending on who you're talking about, what firms you're talking about. In the biggest firms, it's probably around two, 3%. In the smaller firm, it's probably closer to 5%. But two to 5% are black. So our natural market sounds great, right? It's 2% of us talking to 8% of billionaires who are black. But here's the problem. As an industry, since we're not communicating to that industry, then our natural market doesn't see us as a conduit of information. You get what I'm saying? And so I think we need to have more of us in our industry, more of us uh, in the media talking about what's going on in our industry, more of us speaking directly about the opportunities that our industry affords, affords both, both in terms of advice and in terms of careers. And to the extent that we do that, I think our industry would be doing an awful lot better in terms of how we're connecting with uh, the Black community. Okay, well, this is Kalali, Kalali Dobe coming out of... Uh... Calvert County, Maryland. Um, so I'm gonna ask you, I got a lot of questions to ask you, but I'm not gonna ask you all my questions. I'm gonna ask you a couple of questions. I would say just listening to you talk, there, you know, there's a difference between, you know, having money and being wealthy. So how do we identify? Like we talk about generational wealth on Black Men Sunday. Like that's that's what the topic of this this podcast really is. But you know, one thing that I don't think that we've really hit upon is like, how do we identify? or define wealth so that we can better control what we do with it, you know, mm -hmm. so that we can use that to, you know, take care of our communities, or maybe we can figure out different ways of, 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 of moderating how we transfer it. So that's a great question. And, and thanks for the question, Kalia. I appreciate it. On a very simple level, it's just what our net worth is, right? Mm -hmm. uh, assets minus liabilities. And, and we have to manage that uh, increasingly well. I think when I was growing up as a kid in in the South Bronx, to me, wealth was earnings. Uh, the more money I made, the better off I was going to be. That was my priority. And that meant I had to get a job, have a career that paid well. And to me, there is so much more because after earning, the second phase is accumulating assets. It's about savings. It's about investing. It's about growing that nest egg. It also means that I'm gonna to have to manage my budget so that my expenses are, are less than my income. And that difference is then what I get to accumulate and over time by saving it and uh, investing with it, I get to grow it. And then once I have something that's I can count on, then I have to think about how I manage it. What resources am I leveraging to make sure that I am taking care of that wealth? I'm being a good steward of it. And then from there, it's building the wealth. Because there are lots, I'm sure, as you know, Kalil, there are lots of things that we can be doing as investors to make sure that the wealth isn't, isn't staying flat. It hasn't plateaued, that over time we're outpacing taxation and we're outpacing um, in, inflation, taxes and inflation. And then from there, I want to talk about pre preserving wealth. Some of the biggest things that can impact our wealth, you know, we think about emergencies, right? That's, that's important. So when you're saving, you have to think about having a nest egg or, or a, a rainy day for emergency fund to cover that because you have to go back and dip in. That's problematic, right? 
but there are also ways to protect yourself, leveraging what I call risk mitigation product, products. How do we protect our income and how do we protect our assets? A lot of times that is going to mean that we're going to have insurance in the mix. And then finally, and as I said earlier, I think the most critical part, particularly for us in the African-American community, because the data is so unsatisfying, is that we have to figure out how to transition wealth. That's critically important. That's actually excellent because I think when people go back and listen to this, like, like I hope folks listen to this more than one time, this particular episode, because what you just laid out actually, in fact, is a framework for how you should think about your money management. And I don't know, that might, just you saying it right there, like that might go over people's heads in terms of, you know, what you just said. But what I, that's what I heard is I heard a framework for how you should go about managing or thinking about your money in a way that you could grow wealth and then have some wealth to transfer it. And then of course that final stage is, okay, then what do we do with it? You know, once we have it, how do we transfer it? How do we use, utilize it to then, you know, better our community? So right. now I, I definitely uh, 100% appreciate that answer. I know I'm going to go back and listen to it after, after we put this episode up. Um, what I want to, uh, next thing I want to ask you is, um, all right, let's say like, we don't talk about we don't talk about this enough, I think. So let's say, you know, I'm 40 years old today. I'm a little older than 40, but let's say I'm 40 years old old today. And you know, I've just been trying to make it. I got a job, you know, but I'm basically, you know, living paycheck to paycheck. Um, what can I do with some money that's maybe not a whole lot of money, but some money that I might have to maybe create some wealth or a safe landing space um so that, you know in you know another 20 years or another 30 years i'll be able to have a safe landing space when i reach retirement age the answer to that question is not complicated mm. but it's personal yeah. um, because what works for me and what i can do uh or what i did when i started out may not be what the other person another person on this call or listening to this can do what do i mean by that i am not terribly risk averse i i take high flyers uh, I'm not. I'm not afraid of of risk. But for some other people, that's that's tough to think about. It's hard earned money. One of the things I learned coming in the business that I'm in over the last several years is that man's most precious commodity is their money. People will say it's their family or their faith and their friends. My experience is it's their finances because most people won't even share with you when they're ha they have money and rightfully so and because they work so hard to earn it they're not they're they're not taking risks with it what they're not understanding is that that by putting it under the mattress or only putting it in a cd or money market fund they're actually taking a significant risk the risk of inflation or or deterring their return on an after tax basis so what i would say is uh, there are some freebies, right? So first you want to save and have money set up for a rainy, rainy day. That's a given. You should have a budget that says, as I said earlier, that your expenses are less than your income. So you actually have something to save. But the freebie is we have in the United States what, what are called defined contribution plans. So IRAs, 401k, 403b. And as a community, we are a little bit, if not a lot bit behind how the rest of the United States takes advantage of those programs. And the reason we should be taking care of them is just this simple. Here's the answer. 
the money that you set aside, you get to set it aside pre-tax. Pre-tax means that money did not get taxed by the federal government before you set it aside. Did not get taxed by the state before you set it aside. If you live in a place where you triple or quadruple tax, not taxed before it. It immediately goes into a safe place, hopefully, because you're investing wisely under the advice of a good financial advisor, where that pre-tax money. So if you're in the 30% tax bracket, that's a made-up tax bracket. You get $1,000 in income. If you were saving after tax, you'd only have $700 to save. But if you're saving in pre-tax, that's $1,000 you get to save, part one. Part two is the money that your investment earns while it's in this qualified retirement plan grows tax-free. Same thing. If your money earned $1,000 in a year and it was taxable and you're in a 30% tax bracket, your $1,000, you have to pay $300 in taxes on it. And so realistically, your return is only seven. I, I mean, you have to pay $30 in taxes. So in reality, you only made $70 on your money. In an IRA, 401k, 403b, that entire $1,000 is now accumulated in your account and goes on to earn more money in perpetuity. Now, in retirement, when you start drawing on that money, you have to pay taxes on it. But you're taking paying taxes on what you were drawing, not on what you earned over the 20, 30, 40 years that you're saving. So my first advice to anybody is take full advantage of those kinds of programs where you are. If you're in a company that doesn't have a retirement plan available to you, if you're if you are an entrepreneur and you don't have a plan in your company or you're depriving your employees of a plan because you haven't put it in place, then my advice would be get that done this year without question. Yeah, it's helpful to me. And then I'm going to just ask one more question, which is really a selfish question for me because I also, I do bank with with Wells Fargo. So, <laughs> Thank so, <you. laughs> so this is a selfish one for me. Okay. Uh, what what are some uh, services that Wells Fargo may offer that people don't know about or don't take advantage of? And if you don't want to make it specific to Wells Fargo, you could just make it the banking industry in general. That people, you know, services that are out there that people don't know about or or or, or are underutilized. It's not a loaded question, but I get you some trouble. You take it offline. <laughs> no, no, no. I, we don't. It's it's all good. I think I think that the thing that first kind of came to my mind as you were asking the question, though, is actually the services of a financial advisor. If we have health issues, we go to a doctor, right? If we have legal issues, we go to an attorney. If we have tax issues, we go to an accountant. And generally speaking, when I when I show up in a room you know, whether it's at a party or go to a friend's house or whatever, and I tell people I'm in the financial services business, the question that they ask me is, what should I invest in, All right? What's the hot thing? Should I do crypto is, you know, in the last couple of years, the number one thing I get asked. Right, should I go put my money in crypto? Right? <laughs> and, and the truth of the matter is, I don't, I don't think that's where we start. Um, I think where we start is with a plan. And so people ask me all the time, what is, what are you talking about? Well, a plan, if you're going to California and you don't know where you're going, you may end up somewhere, but it may not be California, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're going to invest and you, 
you probably ought to decide where it is you're trying to go. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, no. What's, import that. what's important to you and your family? And what uh, what are the jobs that you want your money to do? Uh, recognizing that our money will need to do different jobs at different times. So you may need an emergency rainy day fund. You may need to purchase a home. You may need to educate your children or ourselves. We may need to own a, or want to own a business or take care of elderly parents. And then, of course, there's the big retirement issue. Healthcare is a big issue, particularly in retirement. And for some of us, maybe we want to support organizations doing work that we believe in, right? But until you put that down on paper or today on computer and understand where you are today relative to those goals, what planning allows us to do is to figure out how to get from where we are today to where we want to be in the future and allow time and our commitment to our goals and our discipline around achieving the goals drive us to get there and be able to navigate what's going on in the world, all the catastrophes that could impact our wealth and, and then understand how those changes uh, will impact us and then be able to make tweaks and changes to our plan so that ultimately we get to our goals. And the best way to do that, and it doesn't have to be Wells Fargo. There are lots of professionals who are really good at this stuff and talk to a professional financial advisor about uh, how to help you to achieve that. And I think that would be the best advice um, that I would have. Thank you. And the best resource that we have as an industry to anybody. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for spending time with us. Uh, definitely appreciate you taking time out, you know, to a uh, time out of your day to, to share some knowledge with us. Definitely appreciate your approach on, you know, dropping some hopeful, you know, optimistic information on us first before we get into some other stuff. So I definitely appreciate all of that. Thank you so much. Uh, I'll leave the floor for anybody else who got, got questions. Thank you, Khalil. I appreciate you being on. My name is James Morris, and I'm calling from Virginia Beach, Virginia. I wanted to ask. Um, I have a I have a passion for finances, and um, but you know, finance the financial industry is so you know it's such a broad industry where you you know you tap into insurance, you tap into investing, like you said, debt management, and you know all these things. Uh, are there any um, more economical ways to get involved in the industry to to land a, a, a good career to where you wouldn't have to, you know, go to school and spend so much money to get involved in the industry? I don't know that you need, for instance, I'm a chemist by education, right? Um, and a lot of people in our industry, yes, they have finance backgrounds or their MBAs or PhDs or doctors and this, that, or the other, but there are lots of us. Uh, I don't know that uh, we invested a lot or even anticipated. I went to school to be a uh, physician. That's what my parents sent me to school for. That was my choice. I could be that or an, or an attorney. Those were my only two choices. Fortunately for me, I found Wall Street. Um, but but I, I think that the biggest part is going to be preparing yourself for what this industry is going to demand of you and being able to share that commitment with our industry when you're trying to get into it. I think we're still believers in folks who are committed to the business. 
And so my, my advice would, to you is I, I would not put any limitations on yourself based on, you, you know, I'm listening to you speak to me. You sound, you know, better than I do. <laughs> so you, yeah. you, if you're passionate about this, get in the business um, and do the business. I wouldn't put any limitations on anybody based on things like education necessarily. Um, and if big firms want to be more, um discriminating if you will there are lots of other firms where people can come into the business and pursue a career in the financial services business brother david dawkins are you enjoying yourself on black men sundays brother this is living my best life man this is what wakes me up every day part of the reason i'm still in the business as long as i am is because i love this i love talking to my folks about opportunities in our industry opportunities to impact um, wealth in our community and I'm having, I'm having a great day. Thank you. Definitely. And I just want to have you clarify something for me real quick. Managing director in national sales of wealth and investment management for Wells Fargo. Mm -hmm. Exactly. What does that mean? It means I have the best job in the country. Um, so managing director is, is, is an office title, you know, as you're going to your you know, associate, vice president, assistant, vice, you know, all these things that folks uh, level on you. And um, I, I've been in the industry and been here long enough and in positions of leadership where, you know, managing director is a title. Now, wealth and investment management is a division of Wells Fargo. It's one of our business groups that focuses on what we're talking about. It's the idea of helping clients succeed financially around uh, building and growing and transferring their wealth and providing clients with capabilities and resources in order to achieve that. And uh, national sales is the part of that organization that I'm a part of. So we are, we're in the business of helping our financial advisors get access to information and resources so that they can better help and serve their clients. And I, I, I have a for lack of a better term, a leadership role in helping to do that. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I mean, as a black man from the South Bronx, you say that very humbly, because I don't really know a lot of guys from the South Bronx that, you know, <laughs> South Bronx isn't, I'm, I'm from Brooklyn, Brownsville, East New York, yeah. so yeah. I've been around, so I, you know, I, you're very humble in your answers, and I, I appreciate that, but, but before I let you go, as I said, you know, I'm from um, Newport News, Virginia, I lived in um, Brooklyn, New York. It's funny. We moved from Brooklyn, New York to New Purdue, Virginia for a better life, not realizing you're basically diving back into the same nest egg. Right. But, you know, one thing that I like to do is um, with my title is I like to join boards. Like I noticed like when I look at your resume, I see boards, committees, councils. So for brothers that are in high positions in their job, how important is to get involved in the committees, in the boards, in the councils? How important is that? Because we know we talk about generational wealth, but we don't talk enough about getting involved in these committees. Mm -hmm. So, how important was that for you? Because when I look at your resume, even though you told me, you know, not to run your whole resume down, that's what I see a lot of. And how does that help aid in wealth? Yeah, thanks for thanks for the question, Corey. That, that's that's a 
I may get emotional as I answer the question, so indulge me for a second. But 1978, this 22-year-old Black kid in New York decided he wanted to be, at the time we called ourselves stockbrokers, wanted to be a stockbroker. And I must have interviewed at over 30 companies in New York trying to become a stockbroker. And that's why your question, James, was so resonated so much with me. And I got turned down. In fact, I was in interviews where people said to me, we're not going to hire you. You're Black and you're 22 years old. And in 1978, they had no qualms saying that. It was just that blunt. And it was so difficult getting in the business, Corey, that I made a decision. I wasn't even hired yet as a financial advisor. I made a decision that I would have to succeed. First of all, I'd have to get hired. <laughs> I'd have to succeed at it so that I one day could become a conduit for people who looked like me to get in the business, plain and simple. And so I've been fortunate to do that. The 100 Black men have a, of America, you know, they, they have a motto, I guess that's what you call it, says, if you can see it, you can be it. I know I don't like saying it, but I know that I am a role model. You know what I'm talking about? Because there's so many people who don't even think of our industry as an opportunity for them. They certainly don't think uh, of investing as something they ought to be. And so to the extent that I hold myself out and I'm out doing this, I'm serving on boards, I'm uh, participating at my church, I'm speaking in communities, I'm trying to make a difference, I'm mentoring students, I'm mentoring older people, I mentor a lot of people. To the extent that I'm doing that, I have an opportunity, I have a, a forum from which I can share what's possible for other people that they may not be thinking about. And I think it's critically important, and they don't have to be Dave Dawkins to do that. I think we all have something to share. We all have um, life experiences we can share with others and pull other people up. And so I think it's important for us to do that. And I, I've been very fortunate to do that. And I, I would recommend anybody listening or watching this uh, to say, you know, where can I serve? Because if, if you can see it, you can be it. Definitely. And I want to stay on that for a second. Like I said, I'm a mentor. We've done an essay contest where, you know, the top five students, we gave out $500, hundred for the top five students. You know, we're not on the level where I can give out $500 each, but we also did a turkey drive this year. And also, you know, looking, um, you know, looking at your resume, I see you're also uh, passionate about advocating for at-risk youth and quality education for future generations. And that's what we do on Black Men Sunday, yeah. you know, our turkey drive. You know, we've done an essay contest. We have some things cooking, but I'm not going to tell anybody right now. So I'm just saying how, and I know coming from the South Bronx, I get it. But from your point of view, you know, um, Wells Fargo, just talk about the, uh, the council and the consortium that you're a part of in Florida. Yeah. So you you probably know, and, and the folks listening probably know, schools are divided into districts, school districts. And most of those school districts are supported by education foundations who help them to raise money, who give guidance to the heads of those school districts, who advocate for specific uh, educational programs and resources for students in schools and typically tend to focus their efforts on underserved communities because unfortunately our school systems in a lot of places tend to 
not focus there, focus on the majority and leave uh, others behind. And I've been fortunate here in Orlando to serve on the foundation for Orange County Public Schools. And through that experience, uh, had an opportunity to serve on what's called the Consortium of Florida Education Foundations, which is an organization that brings together all the education foundations in the state of Florida and advocate for uh, education programming at, in Tallahassee for the entire state. And we get to hear feedback and input from all the different uh, education school districts and foundations across the state. And then we bring together all that um, knowledge and all that uh, drive and all, all of that into one central place, which is a consortium, and then bring that up to, to Tallahassee to advocate. And I, I'm very fortunate to be a part of that. The reason I'm involved in it is because I'm aware that you know our education system is based on taxes uh, and how those funds are allocated is based on taxes. And so if there isn't somebody driving and yelling and screaming about the need for quality education in communities, we call them underserved, where the revenue from taxes are not that great, that that approach to education in the United States leaves people at risk. And as a, as a Black person who grew up in the South Bronx in New York City, who had a checkered educational program that I had to participate in, I want to have played my part. And the consortium does its part to advocate for uh, communities like the one I serve. Uh, you didn't mention uh, one of the other things that's probably on on my um, my bio, which is I serve on the board of the SIFMA Foundation. SIFMA is an industry foundation, so we advocate for our industry and we advocate for uh, clients that our industry serves. So laws that may impact our industry, or laws that may impact our clients, and how do we get? Washington, D.C., to think about those impacts before they vote. Very powerful organization. The SIFMA Foundation, I mean, the SIFMA Board has a foundation. The foundation is focused on community building. And one of the big ways we do that is through a program called the Stock Market Game. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but the Stock Market Game today serves over 700,000 students across the United States, primarily Title I schools. That's our focus. And those schools, I'm excited to be a part of that because what we bring through the stock market game is access to investing to students from, um, from these schools. And so they learn about the stock market, they learn about the capital markets, they learn about how to select um, investments, they learn about how to manage those investments, they learn about risk, they learn about beta and alpha and all these things. And so you have kids who should be learning some of these things at home, but here's the power of it, Corey. These kids are taking it home to teach their parents. And to me, to be a part of that deal is an awesome thing. And I just wanna give a shout out to our friends at 100 Black Men of America. They uh, became aware of our program and leveraged it. And I think we're, they are now using the stock market game, not in schools, but in their programs in 15 chapters around the United States, educating, uh, students who are part of their program, so what they call the Junior Investment Club, to teach uh, Black students about uh, investing. I think it's awesome. 
Hey, how you doing, Mr. Dawkins? Uh, my name is Ray Simmons. I'm calling actually out of Rockledge, uh, Florida, um, here. So not too far away from you in Orlando. And uh, I, I jumped on the Zoom a little bit late. However, uh, I, listening to a lot of the things you're saying and just looking over your bio, uh, it's pretty incredible. Um, I just really have one question, and it was on the topic uh, you just spoke on of investing um, through through teaching the kids about stuff. My daughter actually used that program while she was in school, and uh, it's just pretty incredible. And it kind of segued into me talking to her and teaching her even more about the market. Because um, like you said, growing up, a lot of us didn't have these opportunities and, and we didn't learn how to balance checkbooks and we didn't learn about, you know, uh, the market and credit and, and these opportunities. So uh, kudos to you for everything you've done and everything you're, you're continuing to do. And uh, just my one question uh, was regarding the investing side of things uh, for yourself. Uh, and I, and I heard you mention something about Wall Street also and, and when you started back there. And so what do you see today uh, investing in, in these types of markets that's a little bit different from the time when you came in the market on Wall Street? I know they used to be like there were, there were paper orders at one point during that time. And, you know, we didn't have the uh, technology. The technology wasn't available to where you could submit your own orders through a platform so how, how hard was that to overcome from that point and to where we are now in 2024 well I, i'm very fortunate and i thank my parents for this that I, i'm wired to accept change so change doesn't bother me in fact i'm motivated by it to be able to do new things and to be able to talk to people about things that they may not have thought about before or even sometimes heard of before. So I love that. So none of it has been challenging for me. I think probably the most, the biggest change to me that's going on in our industry, uh, a lot of people would think it's things like crypto or AI and all that. I think those things are great. To me, it's the use of things like algorithms uh, in investing today. So a lot of people are at home and they sign on to systems where they're making their own trades and, and, and I'm not against it, but what they're going up against is algorithms. And these algorithms, when you think you have some good reason to buy something, that algorithm not only knew about it before you did, that algorithm executes that order in less than a nanosecond. You can't beat it. Um, and it just points to the reason more so now than ever, the importance of having access to real professional advice, not only in terms of figuring out how to build a plan to get to your personal goals, part one, but part two about uh, how to leverage uh, capabilities that exist today to help you not necessarily outperform the algorithms, but use the algorithms to your advantage. It's hard to do that um, on your own. Now, that doesn't mean you can't make smart investment choices on your own. Absolutely, you can. And that's what we teach in the stock market game. But you're certainly at some disadvantage compared to computer run programs to do so. So that would be the biggest thing to me. Perfect. All right. Well, I have one last question for you because I know you, you know, it's Sunday. You got that Sunday dinner waiting for you. I know my Sunday dinner, I got some cheese grits, catfish, 
McDonald's. Mac and cheese yams. You know, the wife from West Palm. So, you know. So anyway, my last question. I got a you. green smoothie waiting for me. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing a, a cleanse. Oh, okay. <laughs> much better than me. I think we're going to have to have you back on when we talk about the health and wealth conversation. So my last question for you, man. When we talk about inheritance, you know, it's funny you said you're from the South Bronx. I have family from uh, Brownsville, Brooklyn, Starwright City near Queens. Mm-hmm. But one thing that I learned is, um, you know, my grandmother lived in that apartment since like 1970. She passed away. There was no wealth. It was, okay, you're going to stay in the apartment, return the key. She's moving out. So you're going to have to pay a different rate. So when we talk about like the legacy the inheritance strategy and how the black community invests compared to the rest of America. Like from my point of view, that's how it was. And then, you know, I moved to the South. My uncle went overseas to Germany, came back to the U S owns a property. But outside of that, I feel like, like I was the first generation to go to college in my family to actually graduate. If I'm going to keep it real. But when we talk about inheritance and legacy, I feel like in our community, even when I look at my wife's family, they had money, but okay, grandmother passes away, boom, 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 the money spread it away, they sold the house, that's it. How does that compare to the rest of America? Hmm. Now you're in my wheelhouse, right? <laughs> so, And that, my friend, is a big part of why I do these uh, kinds of conversations and participate in speaking around the country. So just for perspective, right? If you compare black wealth to white wealth, uh, in in the white community, about 55% of their wealth is invested in illiquid assets. Uh, so we're talking about property, we're talking about business ownership, we're talking about vehicles, right? About about 55% is invested in liquid assets. In the Black community, it's 70% is invested in the liquid assets, part one. Part two, the other 30%, 8% is in cash and some securities and 22% in retirement accounts. Now, the reason why I'm pointing this out is you should have cash. We already talked about it. You should have funds set aside for emergency usage, and it shouldn't be invested in stuff. It should be set aside for emergency or the rainy day. But when you have 70% of your assets invested in liquid in an illiquid way, whether it's real estate or your own business, um, certainly in, in vehicles, Uh, How you manage that is critically important because if our wealth was 70% in e-liquid assets and we managed it, and there are people obviously who are exception to this, right? I'm not saying that every black person does it. I'm talking about the aggregate data. If 70% of our wealth is in illiquid assets and we don't have a succession plan for our business, we don't have a buyout program in place for our business, we don't have our homes titled correctly, or there isn't a will on how it's being distributed, or in that will, we're not specifying what is to be done with it. The problem with illiquid assets is when somebody passes away and their illiquid assets, hopefully there's a will, but even when there is a will, sometimes there are complications, right? And it ends up in probate. Typically what happens is 
that that asset is sold at penny on the dollars, pennies on the dollars, which has the effect of diluting our wealth. So with each generation, instead of that wealth passing, that wealth is then diluted in transfer. That's problematic in terms of how we're building wealth um, going forward. And one of the reasons why I think these kinds of conversations are so important and why the largest contributor to disparity in the growth of wealth, even though black wealth is growing faster, is this idea about the distribution of, of wealth. Uh, and we need to pay very close attention to that data and do differently in our own lives. It's important to have a will. If you have a business, it's important to have a succession plan. If you have retirement plans, it's important to have beneficiaries designated and it should be the way. Don't set it and done. Review it at least annually to make sure it is the way you want it to be so your wealth transfers how you want it to. Well, there you have it. David A. Dawkins came on Black Men Sundays, Wells Fargo, Managing Director in National Sales of Wealth Investment Management, over 35 years of financial industry experience, came on Black Men Sundays and gave us the game. <laughs> gave us the game. I didn't even know he was from South Bronx. Yeah. Boogie wow. down, baby. Wow. David A. Dawkins, thanks for coming on Black Men Sundays. Enjoy your week. Enjoy the rest of your day. Many blessings, brother. Peace. Thanks for having me, Corey. And thanks, gentlemen, for being on the call with us. It's a Black Man Sunday. Time to put all childish things away. I refuse to be the man I was yesterday. Gotta put my best Black man said